Product market fit is essentially getting to a small scale version of your, your business model working. If I go to the, to the definition of the business model that I particularly like, the business model is nothing more than how you create, deliver, and capture value. Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. Since 2014, we've been bringing you conversations with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. Topics we cover include technology, culture, leadership, and more. Coming to you from the Three Pillar Global Studio in Fairfax, Virginia, I'm your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this episode, we'll be looking at how you and your teams can start running lean with the man who wrote the book of the same title. Among the topics we'll discuss are why now more than ever, practice trumps theory, why your actual product is not really your product, how long it should take to figure out whether you have product market fit, and why constraints can actually be valuable for anyone looking to innovate successfully. Here with us today to talk about those topics and more is Ash Maria. Ash is the founder and CEO of LeanStack, a company that focuses on teaching practices that lead to continuous innovation through workshops, books, a web curriculum, and more. Ash bootstrapped his previous company, Wired Reach, in 2002, and since then has launched five products and one peer-to-web application framework. He's the author of Running Lean, Iterate from Plan A to a Plan That Works. The first book in the Lean Startup series from O'Reilly Media, Running Lean is an quote-unquote iterative book that breaks down the process of building a successful company from the ground up and also looks at how those same lessons can be applied by product professionals at more established companies. Ash is also the author of Scaling Lean, Mastering the Key Metrics for Startup Growth. Welcome to the podcast, Ash. Thanks for having me, Will. It's a pleasure to be on. Let me kick things off by asking, in the introduction to Running Lean, You write about how the book was the product of a two-year journey in search of a better methodology for building successful products. I'm sure this is tough to do, but can you give a short-ish synopsis of what those two years were like? What were you working on, and what epiphanies did you have that led you to write the book? Sure, yeah. Two years sounds like a long time, but it's uh, it really flew by, and, and a lot of it was because I didn't start out with an intent to write a book. I really started out with an intent to figure out some things for myself, which was how to build products better. Um, I'd been an entrepreneur over many years and had built, like many entrepreneurs, many products. And all of them started out as awesome ideas. Not all of them went off to become awesome products, awesome business models. And so that bothered me after a while. Um, I began to to realize that I couldn't tell the difference between what was a good idea and and a bad idea from the outset. So that started me on a journey where I started first by blogging and then through the encouragement of some of my readers, you know, reluctantly considered writing a book. Uh, but my process was, was quite different. It was really, let me go and really share my thinking, my learning by way of speaking, eventually became workshops, as a way to see if this is helpful, if this is even valuable. And that was the process. So the first, you know, it was a two-year journey, but the first, I would say, year even was really blogging and, and speaking, writing, doing workshops. And only in the last year did I sit down to write a lot of that into the book. Yeah. Um, that's the, the biggest insight. It was, it was this notion of how um, 
most of us, when we start with an idea, just prematurely fall in love with product, fall in love specifically with solution. And that was something that is just a automatic thing we do. And the book was all about, and really my learning and my epiphany was all about treating not just the solution, but the business model really as the, as the core product. It seems like the underlying theme of the book and much of your writing and workshops is that practice trumps theory. It's one of your slogans that Eric Reese calls out in the foreword to the book, in fact, is something that drew him to you in the first place. I think most listeners will be savvy enough to get what you mean, but can you expound a little on why you think this is such an important concept? Yeah, and, and it's, I think it's, it's, it is a rather simple idea, but it's that you can't really know something until you've experienced it firsthand, until you've tested it, because a lot of the devil lies in the details. So lots of people go to MBA schools. I have read many business books, even though I was more of a technical founder. So a lot of theories out there. You know, there was the crossing the chasm theory, the disruption, disruptive innovation theory. Um, there's you know all kinds of marketing techniques and books. If you look at the growth hacking meme, there's so many so many ideas in there that all seem very interesting. So one can just spend a lifetime kind of collecting theory. Or one can start applying some of it. And so that's really what the heart of practice from theory was. I had done enough kind of reading and observing and learning. It was now to really see what, where the rubber hit the road. So what worked, what didn't work. And funny enough, that applies very much with the lean process in general. A lot of it is don't take things on faith, even things you may believe very, very, very ardently. Um, you have to test everything. So similarly, I would take ideas, even stuff that in the early days Eric or Steve would say, and I would test it because it was not so much about just blindly following advice. It's really applying it, testing it, and then refining it. And I think that's what, in the end, also created kind of my own voice, my own differentiation, because I saw some things work, some things work in certain circumstances, some things need you know, special treatment. And so that's all kind of what became the body of work that I, I now share with people. Got it. So in step one of your roadmap, you recommend that entrepreneurs document their business ideas in a lean canvas, which is your adaptation of Alex Osterwalder's business model canvas. Can you explain what goes into the lean canvas and why it's so important that it only be one page? So the lean canvas in, in a nutshell is, I guess the best analogy is a one page business plan. So lots of people write business plans. You know, there are many pages. The, the biggest challenge is getting anyone to read them and then give you feedback, give you, uh, give you some insight, some advice. Um, so the Lean Canvas cuts through the heart of all of that by getting entrepreneurs to really just focus on the same concept. So who is your customer? You know, what problems are you solving? What solution will you build? How will you go to market? How will you make money? You can answer all these questions. But rather than going super verbose and writing chapters in a fictional business plan, because in the beginning, lots of things are unknowable, we recommend that people take their first snapshot just on that canvas. And so it's really nine blocks. Um, if, if you head over to leancanvas.com or just Google it, you'll see the visual. But it's, it's really just a nine box kind of visual. It's one page and that's what you see is what you get. It should be fairly obvious. But the idea is to get entrepreneurs to, to get concise with their ideas because they're going to have to do that anyways. When they are in front of a customer or an investor, they're going to have to do their pitch, the elevator pitch, or kind of get to the point. And so this is just practice right from the start. It's just getting them to think more clearly. Okay, got it. And in the Lean Canvas model, you have the product box is physically one-ninth of the entire Canvas page because the product is not the actual product. So what is the actual product? Yeah, yeah. And I actually relabel that to solutions. So for a lot of entrepreneurs, 
product equals solution is the thing I'm building. And the real product is really the business model. And that for me was the epiphany. That was the, the light bulb moment when I realized that much like we can be very disciplined, systematic, methodical about building an actual solution, we can apply the same principles to building the business model. And just like a, an actual product, like an actual solution, there are components to it. And those building blocks in the canvas are those components. So we can build out our channels. We can test channels. We can build out our customer segments, because not all customers are going to be equal, and we can test that out. So you kind of get the point. You can kind of systematically deconstruct an idea into those component pieces and then build them up like you would a product. So another key and sometimes intimidating part of defining a business plan is defining the risks of the plan and how to tackle them. But you talk about how many people get uncertainties and risks confused What's the difference between the two and how do you learn to become accustomed to the uncertainties? Yeah, so, so that distinction is very key and, and it's, it's key because we sometimes, I wouldn't say sometimes, we almost always find entrepreneurs chasing the wrong risks at the wrong time. And so they might worry about you know, scalability or performance or quality or some design aesthetic. Um, when you don't have that many customers, those may not be the riskiest things. And so uncertainty is really just a state of not knowing. It's not being, it's not having evidence for something. Um, a risk puts some weight to being, you know, what would happen if you're wrong? So if you were wrong about your customers um, early on, that is probably the biggest risk. Because if your customers are wrong, the problems that you might be tackling, the solution you might be building, the channels you might be using are also all going to be wrong. And so that one domino has a cascade effect. And that would make it one of the riskier, if not the riskiest assumption. But if you were, if you got the product wrong in the early days, maybe not the end of the story, as long as you're still addressing a problem the customer wants, they could have a conversation with you and said, you know, I, you know, what you're doing is is great, but this is what I'm really, you know, struggling with. And so you can reprioritize. So that's kind of the distinction is that uncertainty is simply everything on that canvas is going to be uncertain to some extent, but they're only going to typically be one or two and at most three top risks at any given point in time. And we try to get entrepreneurs to focus in on that and really ignore the rest for the time being until you can overcome those risks. So you break down the three different types of risk in a startup, which are product, customer, and market risk. What's your advice for segmenting these out and prioritizing which to address first? Yeah, so in the world that we live in, most products today suffer from customer market risk over product risk. The other way of saying that is that given enough time, money, and effort, we can almost build anything these days. Now, sure, there are some really hard technical problems still, and, and those could fit in the, in the product risk category. But for the majority of the products that I see being built, um, the biggest leap of faith or the biggest risk is not can we build something, but rather should we build it? And so given that, the recommendation for most is to really start with that customer box, that customer risk. And you want to first make sure, you know, is this really a customer that has a problem? And that to me is that first starting risk. Then we come bring in the market risk, which is, okay, if I solve this problem, is there really a business here? Is this a monetizable pain? Is it something that would be a nice to have, or can I actually build a business around this? And so that's where the market risk comes in. You know, other factors like is the market big enough? You know, can we deliver a solution in a cost-effective manner? Kind of get lumped in there, and then finally we go into product risk, which is once we answer those two questions, it becomes much clearer what we should then go build. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs get it backwards: is they build something and then they try to find the customer and market. 
And for most products, it should be the other way around. And once entrepreneurs have a defined problem in place, you then outline four steps to systematically test their business plan. Three of these steps are interviews, the problem interview, the solution interview, and the MVP interview. How are these different interviews and why are they all important to understanding how your product or business will ultimately perform with customers? So the, I would say that the interviews aren't the only way to test, um, but they are certainly one of the more effective ways to test. And it's a bit counterintuitive because whenever I tell an entrepreneur to go and talk to a customer one-on-one, they try to find you know, other more scalable ways to, to test, which is, you know, why don't I just run a survey or why don't I just you know, look at my metrics? The problem with both of those, the problem with surveys is that we often don't know the right questions to even ask. It's really more of a discovery process. And that's where the interviews are really powerful is we can have an open-ended conversation and you can explore many different answers even deeper. Um, the challenge with metrics is that you know your, your metrics might tell you what's going wrong, but they never tell you why something is going wrong. So you know no one's clicking the buy button, but you don't know what's going through their head. If you're in a face-to-face conversation with them, you could literally just ask them. You know, you haven't bought something. Is there a reason why? And the next thing they say is probably going to be something that you can dig in a bit deeper and get to some deeper insight. So the reason that all those initial, in the early stages, especially, it is so critical when we don't know what we don't know to take a more you know interviewing mindset and you can actually test a lot of these things at small scale for many products, that may not be the scalable way to, to grow the business, but the learning, the insights that you get can then be turned into more scalable channels down the road. So that's why you kind of see that heavy emphasis on, on interviews in the beginning. Got it. And you mentioned that interviews aren't the only ways to test. What are some other effective ways you found of testing? Yeah, so 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 I would say that the the whole idea of the testing in the in the in the loop of the bill measure learn is really getting customer data, customer insights, and so that can either be qualitative, and that's an example of the interviews where they just tell you stuff, um, or it could be quantitative, and that's where you measure what they're doing. So that's where analytics and metrics come into play. So I would say data and and conversations tend to be the, the most common places that people will actually go. And when you're looking for data, you would that's where we get into the whole experimentation mindset is you might build something, you know, you might build something and see are people using it. You might build a feature, see if that's getting usage. You might look at your existing metrics to find patterns in it. So there's a lot of data analysis that can also complement that learning uh, as you get more customers through. Okay, got it. The final step in your book is achieving product market fit, which is the first significant milestone for a startup. You suggest measuring it with two metrics of the customer lifecycle, which are activation and retention. How do you use these to steer your products to product market fit? Yeah, so product market fit is essentially getting to a small scale version of your, your business model working. If I go to the, to the definition of the business model that I particularly like, The business model is nothing more than how you create, deliver, and capture value. So the creation and delivery of value is really what we are trying to primarily measure with with product market fit. And then sure, we want to make sure that we can capture some value, but and that's just a fancy way of saying getting paid. It may not be optimized yet. It may not be fully scalable yet. But just just the act of being able to give a product to someone them using it, getting value out of it, and then paying you is what we want to get to in product market fit. So we want to get enough people doing that. And the way that we kind of measure that those two metrics, activation and retention, tend to be the leading indicators for 
for revenue for satisfaction. And so if you use a very simple example, if you sign up for a, a product online and you the first experience that you have with that product would be activation, if that experience was a bad one, you're probably not coming back and using the product the next day. So that's why that is so critical. You want to make sure that people leave with an aha moment. They leave with something that, that reinforces the value proposition. They know they should keep using your product. So that's why we measure that first metric. And we want to make sure enough people are getting to that aha moment with the product. And then we want to measure sufficient retention. So we want to make sure they're coming back at a reasonable frequency that is that is appropriate for your product. So if you are building something like a Facebook, that could be logging in every day, for instance. They, they track daily active users. If you're building something like an Airbnb, it may not be daily retention. It may be more seasonal. But the idea is that you can still track that. Uh, so those tend to be the initial focuses. Once we can make sure that people are just using our product, coming back to it, um, then that's a leading indicator that they're getting value, which is the first step in the business model, and that revenue will shortly follow. So once we get enough people doing that, that's where we can kind of sing the victory of some early product market fit. And then that's where lots of optimizations can go in into conversion towards purchase or conversion towards growth. Um, and that's kind of the, the, the third stage, which is after product market fit, which is the scaling stage um, in the journey. And I'm, I'm sure it varies from company to company, but what's a, you know, what, what's a timeline like where you eventually want to find product market fit or you need to start thinking about pivoting or shutting things down or moving on to the next one? Yeah, so it, it certainly varies from company to company, but there are some general you know, rules of thumb. And as with anything, you know, rules of thumb are, are not universal. But and this is something we have learned just by putting thousands of startups through the three stages and kind of seeing how long they typically take. Ideas are a lot like babies. As we can measure them in the early days in the order of days and weeks. And so the first phase, which is problem solution fit, which is where you're just trying to find your handful of first customers, that usually can be measured in weeks. We find that um, about eight weeks to 12 weeks, about 90 days, is typically when people will either achieve that or they'll come back and say, this is not worth doing because this problem is not big enough, the customers are satisfied, you know, whatever the reasons are. So that's about kind of maybe you know the first three months of a startup's life. And then product market fit is a journey that can take anywhere from you know that three month on up until we find 24 months, so two years. So it goes from you know from several weeks to several months, and in this case, up to 24 months or two years. Um, and that again is just a rule of thumb. Um, but in the first two years, we tend to see early enough signals that we know we have built something that enough people want, and then we get into the scaling stage, which you know even the best ideas, especially if they have lots of lots of you know potential in them or lots of kind of potential for growth, um, they can take many many years to grow. So Facebook is still you know well into their journey and they're still continuing to grow yet you know many 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 years later. Um, some will eventually saturate. So so again the scaling story can can last a very long time. As one business model begins to expire, they can replace it with some some additional product, additional value proposition. So all those are kind of scaling uh, strategies concerns. But to your question, I would say product market fits for most teams, just rule of thumb is about two years from the point they start. Um, that tends to be a, a good litmus test for are you, you know, on the right track? Or are you maybe taking too long? And should you kind of look at what you're doing a bit more care, more more seriously, more more carefully? Sure. And and so I know I've asked most of the questions from kind of a, a startup and entrepreneur standpoint, and that's the way the book was originally written. But I think for the second edition, 
you you took into account that many well-established companies are implementing some of these same practices to churn out new products. Can you talk a little bit about how some of the larger corporations or, or companies can can also put the same uh, strategies into into practice? Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, speaking of practice from theory, in the first book, the first edition even, which was a, a PDF that I had launched, I, I published myself, I had a disclaimer saying this, you know, I, I know this to only work with with software and particularly web-based software. And so if you apply these principles, you know, I'd love to hear from you, but also use it at your own peril. So I had a little disclaimer in the beginning of the book and a number of people took me up on it. And so they went and and, and picked up a lot of the ideas, applied them and came back to me and said, a lot of the principles are universal. They can be applied anywhere. And that inspired me. So in the second edition, yes, I did generalize it to where it was looking at many different um, kind of possible business types. I also went out of my way to go and talk to different entrepreneurs who were doing clean tech versus biotech, hardware versus software. Also went into the corporate world and looked at what was happening with their innovation projects. And yes, a lot of the principles are, are, are very, very... Uh, universal, the tactics can be different. So sometimes in a corporate, there's a cultural types of things one has to get over. There are who can talk to a customer types of things one has to get over. But the principles tend to be rather universal. But the way that we find bigger companies using it, the the early adopters are still in the innovation teams. So whenever you have a team that's off on their own trying to find a new opportunity, uh, people tend to leave them alone, especially if they're finding a new opportunity that doesn't maybe conflict yet or contradict the existing business model. Um, They're kind of given some space, a sandbox to go and test. That tends to be the sweet spot for testing anything new like this because it is a radically different way than working. And so those teams have embraced the lean canvas over the business plan because it's not about writing a perfect plan that you then go execute. Rather, it's searching for a model that can potentially work. So many of those teams will create a small team, almost mimic a startup within the bigger organization, uh, start with a lean canvas, start to run some of these problem solution fit experiments, go back to your stakeholders and say, I think we have a big enough problem here to go tackle, get additional resources, then go build their minimum viable product. So a lot of the things that startups do, we are finding they're doing the same types of things within the corporate boundaries and of course within the the culture and the rules. Um, and sometimes when I get called in into those organizations, it's trying to create the right structure while respecting the culture, the culture of the corporate. How can we make them act a bit more like a startup? And that's you know sometimes challenging, but you know it has been done and can be done. Sure. Okay. And for the last question, I want to step away from the book into some of the things you've written about online a good bit, which is how constraints can actually fuel innovation. Why is that the case? And can you share an example or two? Sure, yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of constraints. Um, a big reason being uh, I started a lot of my journey as a bootstrapped entrepreneur. And as a bootstrapper, above everything, you have to deal just with lots of constraints. And I learned very early on that you've got to treat them as gifts. Um, so there's a great quote that I think kind of drives that point home by S.K. Sridhar, um, which goes something like, when you don't have resources, when you don't have resources, you become resourceful. And that's an obvious play on the full part. And if you think about it, um, when, when as entrepreneurs, we always want more time, money, people, all the above, uh, the challenge is achieving the goal despite the constraint and being innovative, being creative in the process. Those of your readers or audience that knows uh, the Southwest Airlines story know exactly what I mean. 
they had a constraint. They had fewer air, airlines in the early days than they needed. Um, they found a way to overcome that, and that kind of reinvented the entire business. And there are many such examples. As an entrepreneur, though, some of the constraints I like to bring in whenever possible is things, simple things like time boxing. Um, if you look at some of my work, I'm a big fan of running experiments, not waiting to see when we have a good result, because sometimes that's never, it can be endless, uh, but rather setting a set time box. So whether, you know, come rain or shine, the team's going to get together and really discuss the results. And that keeps forward momentum. Even if the results are bad, let's talk about why they're bad and let's try to fix that. So I think that's a very simple constraint, but there, there are many such, such constraints. Even the lean canvas in a way is a constraint. You know, you could take a 60-page document and just spill out your idea and just babble the whole time. But to actually make it condensed on a single page, it's it's simple, but it's not easy. And when you embrace that constraint, it forces you to be clearer. It forces you to get your point across, and it pays off, and it, it pays off very quickly. So yeah, so I'm definitely a very big fan of embracing constraints. Okay, nice. Well, you mentioned leancanvas.com earlier in the podcast. Uh, a lot of your work now is at leanstack.com. Uh, anywhere else online that folks should be looking out for your for your work, your writing, your coursework? Yeah, no, both those both both those links work, and they'll take you to the same place. Um, I just over the years compiled everything in under the Lean Stack umbrella, um, so that's where you can find a lot of my writings, both on the blog, but also books and some of the tools we have built. Um, so yeah, so I definitely invite your your listeners to go and check it out there. Okay, nice. Well, uh, typically we don't have video turned on, but at this point we do. And I can see that Ash is ever the entrepreneur. He has the whiteboard uh, hung on a wall behind him. Uh, and uh, I'm sure there are great things happening on the, uh, <laughs> on the whiteboard. Ash, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing some ideas around running lean. Yeah, thanks, Will. It was a it was fun, fun podcast and glad to be on. Thank you. Absolutely. The Innovation Engine podcast is brought to you by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. Head to www.3pillarglobal.com to learn more about our services. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and Google Play to ensure that you never miss a new episode and head to 3pillarglobal.com slash podcast to receive new updates about our show and read the full show notes and transcript of each episode. Don't forget, we also have an app for our Three Pillar Podcasts. Just search for the Innovation Engine on the App Store.